welcome to After the Bell with your host, Laura. This podcast is a series of conversations with educators, leaders, and lifelong learners with the hope of deconstructing some of the stereotypes around education. My objective as a teacher is to focus on the passion, humanity, and hope around education and to provide a platform for the myriad of voices that have something to say and teach us all. If you would like to know more about me, please head to my Instagram page at EducatingLaura. Thank you so much for deciding to spend a little time with me today. It is Monday, the 29th of March, and I cannot believe we are at the end of March. And I think about what was going on this time last year with COVID and so much has changed in our world since March 2020. And it's crazy to think that that was a whole year ago. I've had a good week. I had parent teacher interviews, which we did remotely. And I was honestly a little bit skeptical. I hadn't done remote parent-teacher conferences before. And I actually am one of those odd teachers that really enjoys parent-teacher. By the end of it, I have a headache. And I think that's probably because, you know, it's just a really big day sitting under fluorescent lights often. But I always love connecting with parents. And I find that I've pretty much always had very supportive parents and I had some hard truths to tell to some of my junior students during parent-teacher interviews and I had nothing but reinforcement from home and it's just so helpful as an educator to have the whole community part of a child's experience, I suppose, teacher, parent and the greater community and so I felt very, very supported and grateful for the parent community that I am a part of. I also had the privilege of going to some child development classes at school. My sister is a midwife, an exceptional midwife, if I do say so myself. And one of the teachers at school asked for her to come in and speak to the students. And I thought, I'd, I'd love to come in and see what they're talking about and what the students are interested in. Now, the first session was much more about my sister talking about midwifery and how to get into it. And that is a pathway and super interesting. But the second session was much more about answering the questions that the students had and we had to call it because there were so many questions coming thick and fast that we actually had to stop without answering all the questions and I shouldn't say we it was mainly her but I did give some you know insights into birth where it was appropriate there were big questions around public versus private. My sisters worked in both. I had my children through the private health system. My sister had hers through the public. My sister has had a C-section, a natural birth. I've also had an induction. So between the two of us, we'd sort of experienced a lot of different birth situations. She and I are both really positive around birth and our birth experiences. And I love any opportunity that I can have to empower women and couples into be excited about giving birth and that whole experience because I think that the media shows a very negative one-sided view of pain and embarrassment and it certainly was not my experience and I think I'm very blessed that I had my sister with me during my pregnancy and to support me in my choices around birth because there is choice. And she was giving that kind of information to 
the young people that she was talking to. And it was a really inspirational lesson, to be honest. I would have loved to have had a lesson like that as a teenager because they certainly had a lot of questions. They were very, very curious. Before I introduce this awesome episode with Serena Wright, Nathan Vandermond and Aaron Johnston, I would like to make an announcement that I will be cutting down the podcast releases to once a fortnight rather than once a week. The conversations are getting so long. Most of them are well over an hour and I think most people are listening to them in sections or over time rather than just one episode all in one go. So I feel as though I'm a little justified, I guess, in separating it out. It is something I don't want to let go of, but I also want to make sure that I continue with the quality of editing and ensuring that I'm having these deep conversations and getting to the real core of what people believe in the conversations. And through that, it it takes time and trust to develop that kind of conversation. And so they do take a little bit longer and obviously working and finding that balance, whether there is such a thing between work and life and podcasting, I feel like I want to take that pressure off a little bit to not feel as though I have to sort of churn these out and to be able to enjoy the process because I do enjoy it. I do enjoy the connection. I enjoy listening to the conversations, to edit the conversations. It's always really interesting for me to hear it a second time because I tend to get something different out of it. And yes, that is my announcement, I suppose, that this is the last of the weekly and all the other episodes will become fortnightly. Now, I have a conversation with Aaron from Mr. J's Learning Space, Nathan from Mr. Vandermond and Serena from The Right Classroom. And it actually started because Aaron and Nathan, I think, connect through Instagram and were very, very complimentary about each other's episodes. And I said, wouldn't it be lovely for you guys to connect? And we could we could do a conversation and Aaron was really keen. I said, I really like, I would really like someone else to round it out. Have you got any suggestions? And he said, you know what? Do you know Serena? She's awesome. And AP New South Wales. And I said, I don't know Serena, but let's connect and let's get this together. So we have been planning this roundtable conversation for months and it was all about trying to tee up our time. Nathan has a new baby on the way. And so we wanted to make sure that we could record this conversation before anything became too hectic and chaotic, whether that be personally or professionally. So how this one works is I asked everybody to submit a question or a series of questions. And from those questions, we kind of pull our answers together. So this is my great conversation. It's a round table. It's very, very collaborative. We feed off one another. And as Nathan says right at the end, it's funny considering we are high school teachers, primary school teachers from different states, don't actually know each other in person. It's all through online connection. We actually have a very, very similar thread that runs between all of our answers. I think that's kind of cool. I know that you'll love this episode. If you do, please share it on social media, tag all of us in it and follow on Spotify, subscribe on Apple, rate and review the show. I got some really lovely reviews recently and I just enjoyed them so much. Five stars helps me move up in the algorithm that is the podcast platforms. All of those things really, really help. And here is the roundtable discussion. 
Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Thanks, Laura. No worries. Hello. So I have got Aaron from Mr. J's Learning Space, Serena from the Right Classroom. Is it the? Yep. Yes. And Nathan from Mr. Vandermond on Instagram. That's it. And we've had a little group for a while sort of going back and forth in terms of what we wanted to talk about. And so I'd like to start with one of the questions Serena posed, which is how do you feel education has changed following the impact of COVID and lockdowns? And I might start with Aaron. What do you think? Good question. You know what? I think, number one, it's made teachers and students more flexible. And I've noticed now a definite shift in people, staff and students being more willing to engage with things that they haven't done before, like a lot more risk-taking. I know personally from, you know, my experience, there was a lot of reluctancy to get online and to, to try new technologies and things that we hadn't really done before. And, you know, during COVID, we were thrown in the deep end to do that. But now there is definitely a willingness, a kind of attitude of, oh, well, we we tried that thing we didn't do before and we nailed it. So, yep, cool, I can give this a go. And I think it's just trying to harness that flexibility and keep it moving forward so that we don't just sink back into the, what we've always done or the way we've always done things, but keep that risk-taking and attitude of it's okay if we make a mistake because that was honestly, I think, the thing that held people back was not wanting to make mistakes, but we all were just making it up as we went through COVID. We came out the other end and it was all good. So I think we've learned a lot of lessons about that. What about you, Nathan? You would have had, of all the people here, the most time remotely. Yes, I did. Yep. So we had, you know, six months last year and then another little mini one this term. I think one of the things that all teachers have really learned is the importance of building those connections with parents. And then essentially I was in people's lounge rooms and studies and, you know, I, like they're just eating their breakfast on the kitchen table and I'm just there and there's the mum walking in the background as she, you know, gets the next kid ready. And so I was part of the family for six months and you, yeah, you really build that relationship. And then it's been nice to kind of continue that. And like Aaron was saying, we use technology. We just didn't think was part of our job description and we just did it because teachers are essentially learners too and they took on that challenge and then we've also taken on new technologies that allow us to connect to parents so you know our school uses something called class dojo and there's a million other similar platforms which are like just little apps that parents can then connect to you can write your message you can post things about your classroom they can see that you can post you know students can basically hand in work and you can give them feedback so our job this year has been what what worked really well what should we maintain what should we keep going because the parents said that we, when we surveyed them they really enjoyed that they liked knowing exactly what was happening in the classroom to an extent and then it got too much so we you know adjusted what we were doing but yeah it's been more about that connection to family what do you think serena i guess one thing i really saw and similar to what aaron was saying is how adaptable we are when we're pushed out of our comfort zone. I think we as teachers and, and children, we like to say what we know is safe and this pushed the norm for us. It pushed how do we engage with our students when they're not in our classroom? How do we ensure they're still receiving explicit teaching? How do we make sure our community is doing well and our parents are okay? And it showed us so many different ways of being able to do that, that coming out of it, and I 
I take my hat off to you guys down in Melbourne for dealing with that because you've been forced into it for a lot longer than we had. But coming back into it, it highlighted how we utilise technology, how we still provide explicit teaching for our children who may be coming back from overseas. My school has a large percentage that who come from overseas. And so how do we engage them if they went overseas for holidays over Christmas because of family events and they've been in isolation for the 14 days before coming back to school? Well, it's not a, a question anymore but we have systems in place to go, that child is still attending our classroom and we're making sure they're still receiving explicit teaching despite not being in the four walls that they are. So I think it's shown us we're far more adaptable than we think we are and incredibly flexible in the way we can ensure our children are still receiving quality education. The flip side I find with technology is the fact that it is so accessible to everybody. How do you draw a line between when you're a teacher and when you're not, and when you clock off, when you are technically available through technology constantly? Mm. Good question. For me, I find you need to have set hours that you've given yourself and everyone chooses their own hours that they're going to say, you know, on this day I go to the gym at this time, on this day I'm doing family dinner, on this day I have certain times and obviously that changes or there's times where there's learning conversations and you're going to be on, as I say, more. But it's about having time to switch off and saying whether your emails are connected to your phone, you don't check it at that time because if we're not prioritising ourselves and our well-being and knowing that I can look on my phone and see emails all the time, it does affect bringing work into your personal life. And in order to be our best in our profession, we do need to look after ourselves as well. So I personally find having that time that you go, nope, if there is an email, it will wait till tomorrow. What can I do between now and 7.30, 8 a.m. tomorrow? nothing so i'll look at it tomorrow morning but everyone has their own boundaries i think it's a matter of sticking to it Mm. what do you guys think yeah i'd agree and i was going to say exactly what serena said and communicating that to parents so Mm. like nathan was saying we did use class dojo as our main communication and setting those quiet hours where parents would get an alert and say yep you've sent a message but it's quiet hours and you know mr johnson's not going to be replying until after whatever time and making that clear to parents and letting them know, yep, you can message me, but I am not going to reply until whatever hours it was set with what works well for you. And we were consistent about that, especially during COVID. And we're still consistent about it now is that as a school, we have those set quiet hours where we don't post and we don't message and we don't reply so that it's not, oh, well, this teacher That's does. This idea. teacher gets back to me at yeah. nine o'clock at night. But just, a, just a blanket this is, this is what we've agreed. These are the hours that we'll set. And one thing I do love about Dojo, because sometimes I am a bit of a, like, I just want to do it now mm. kind of person. And it just bugs me when I don't do it. So the good thing about Dojo is you can schedule a message. So sometimes I would like write my message, but then schedule it to be sent at whatever time. So at least mentally, I don't have it hanging over my head. I've done it, but the parent's not getting it until it's within those hours that I I said, and like Serena said, it's just about finding what works for you, but definitely giving yourself that time because we all need that. You can't run 24 hours a day, seven days a week. What about you, Nathan? Yeah, very much the same. We had this, this similar conversation with our staff too. And once one thing like Aaron was saying, having those quiet hours are really important because it sets the boundaries. But another, another thing you have to remember is that so in 2020, I was teaching grade one and two composite, but I was the only composite grade in the whole school. And so I was technically part of two different teams. And so out of those two teams, there were maybe, you know, two or three teachers in each team. 
as well as me, and then how much were they posting on Class Dojo or keeping their class up to date. I felt really comfortable using the technology, but so many other teachers didn't, and they did not feel comfortable using the program, using the website, realizing the difference between the usability of the app versus what you were doing on the desktop. And so because of all of those things, we had to come up with agreed amounts of posting so that one teacher didn't look like they were doing less work, even though they, they're not, they're doing equally, you know, we share everything at our school, but it was parent perception as well. You know, why is Mr. Vandermon posting, you know, something every day or I get all these extra updates from him and videos and whatever, and this other teacher's not doing that. And so, yeah, we just we came up with that agreed practice, which was really important so that we, none of us looked mm. bad, but we're all supporting each other to to do, you know, what was expected and we have that consistency with parents. I think another thing, it's not just to our parents but also to our kids modelling how to live in a digital age. They have got devices now and their device is so readily available to them and we're trying to ensure that they switch off from technology and so I find by us modelling to them, well, at this time I'm no longer responding to you on... So we use um, Google Classroom, so similar to Dojo where you can converse with them, but... If we're saying, I don't respond at this time because that's when I switch off my device because that's important for my health, it models to our students, put the device away at the moment, we need downtime before we go to bed, we need to do other things, we need to do with our family. And if we're modelling that, hopefully they won't rely on technology as much as we're seeing coming through. You made an interesting comment, Nathan, about the comparison. And as a high school teacher, that comes far less from parents for us. It comes from the students. So it'll be a student saying, well, this, <laughs> yeah, you would know this English teacher uses PowerPoint or this English teacher is, you know, responding to me at this time. And so it can be a really divisive thing within the education profession. So how much communication is going on with you guys to ensure that you are protecting each other, I suppose, as a community from some of those divisive conversations? Yeah, like I said, that conversation was really important because there was a discrepancy with how not only different teachers were using it, but how much different year levels were using it as well. And then we also have the difficulty of, well, how independent are our kids? You know, between prep and grade six, there is a huge difference in their independence and the ability to communicate with their teacher. So that was another conversation. So we came up with a policy where each year level had to be consistent with each other and there were also some overarching kind of expectations where how many posts would happen per week and then teams within themselves could decide, you know, what other things they were going to do and maintaining some consistency. And one of the things we found really helpful was that we would have one class dojo per class, but we would also create a year level one. So anything that was created for, you know, that, essentially every child should be getting if it was maybe a run through of what they were going to learn that week or, you know, something, you know, an important announcement that every child should be getting and every parent, well, then it goes on that shared one. And so there was even less discrepancy between how teachers were communicating information and everyone felt like they were getting what they needed. We also, apart from that, also use another program called Compass, which is, you know, there's a million other programs like that. But that one was directly from our principal, and that was school-wide. So every parent got a, you know, a little announcement or a notification and a message through that. So 
across those platforms, you know, every person was getting the same information. At other significantly large schools, similar to how Nathan was saying, we ensured consistency across every grade. So what every grade sends out was the same, especially during online learning. We've also got a very close community that like to check what everyone's doing. And so it was a matter of making sure that if one year four class is doing something, so are the others. If we've got triplets across the grade, all three of those classes are being sent the same work at the same time, Zooming at the same time. There was no difference so the parents couldn't compare, well, how come my child's doing this different work, but then their sibling is getting something entirely different. And the same across the whole school. We then had made a very consistent approach across the school as to what times we would send out information to parents or to students. And that was communicated to our parents as well so that they knew the whole school was doing the same thing. You'll receive learning at this time. This is the time that we expect children to submit work back to us. That way there's no discrepancies happening. And it's very similar, I find, now coming out of COVID back in class still. Having, I'm into all of my classes so I can access all their online posts that they're making and how they're sending out activities. And it's safe to say no teacher is doing more than another. It's very consistent in what they choose to send out to students through a digital medium that I can't look and go, oh, one class hasn't sent out anything for two days and one's sending out every activity online. It's We've come back and gone, no, it needs to be consistent because our parents can see what is on their child's device. We need them to see that every class is doing similar work. They might, you know, send out one or two extra a day, but overall our parents cannot say that one child is missing out and another is getting more. Nathan, your first question was about the why of teaching. So do you want to answer that first or would you like someone else to answer why? I guess I can explain why I chose that question. You know, before you start teaching, there's other things that you'd also like to do in your life. And, you know, although this was sort of my dream job, I also loved things like advertising and I liked, you know, product development and I like graphic design, I like landscape architecture and all these things that I loved. But really it always came back to the why why do you do that? Why do you want to do those things? And in those industries, it's actually really important to know the why. A lot of those products are equal. You know, they do the exact same thing. They are very similarly priced as well. But it's it's the why for the company. Do you believe the company? Do you know why they produce what they produce? And that is what sells the product. And so for me as a teacher, I like to just reflect on that I think it's really important to think back on, well, you know, it's very easy to get caught up in, you know, report writing or, you know, this additional admin that keeps happening for teachers, more and more expectations of what we're supposed to be doing and, and how we're supposed to be managing students and their families and so many other things and the learning and best practice. But that's all good and well, but why do you get up every morning? Like why, why are you still here? If you don't connect to that, well, then none of the other things you do will have that real rich value. So I just thought I'd ask the team and say, you know, why are you here and why do you, why did you get into education to begin with? I, I can answer that because I actually don't think I had the why until quite recently. So I think okay. that it made sense to me. I, I liked so many different subjects. I didn't know what job would allow me to do all of the subjects because I'm an English biology and dance teacher, so all over the place. And so it made sense that I could do those subjects together. And so that's how it started because I couldn't pick an interest and there was no job that would allow me to do all of those things. But the why came when I became a teacher and I could see the impact. And I think for me specifically, 
choosing high school was quite deliberate because I felt as a high school student I was quite lost and I didn't have a really clear mentor at that time and I think I really needed a safe and I guess a role model as an adult and when I became a teacher I could see how important those safe adults are for teens and so the reason I got into it was about the subjects but for me now the why is so much more about making a difference the relationships you can foster and also being able to be that person for students and for kids that don't have that adult in their life. Yeah, that's beautiful. Actually, you guys can see me on this screen, but I have a little poster in my classroom up in that corner. It's a little black one. It says, mm. uh, be who you needed when you were younger. And it's, as yeah. I think that's for, for me very much like you said, Laura, starting out in teaching is sort of it's so flexible. Every day is different. There's a lot that drives you towards that. So dynamic. It's constantly changing. You have to upskill. Maybe you've had a good experience with a particular teacher, so you want to get back in there. But it's when you're in the actual pit of teaching and you're learning so much and, and you see the impact that you're having, I think that's probably true for a lot of teachers. What about you, Aaron? Well, I shared this before, but see, teaching was actually my second second choice. I knew, so I've got like lots of nieces and nephews and I knew that I wanted to work with kids. You know, I really enjoyed being with my nieces and nephews and working with kids, but I actually went into my seniors of high school thinking I'm going to do medicine. I'm going to be a a pediatrician or a pediatric something and did all my science subjects. And then in year 12, started to really wrestle with the reality of you know, because I wanted, I had this motivation, I wanted to make a difference in the lives of young people. But what if there's a kid that I can't, I can't help or I can't make a difference? And that really changed my trajectory because I really wrestled with that. Like, what what if I can't make a difference? What if I can't help? So then I had to reevaluate and go, well, what can I do where I know every day I can make a difference? And for me personally, I went back to my days in primary school and, um, you know, my home life as a kid wasn't wasn't the greatest of experiences, but it was teachers who saw something in me that I didn't see um, and got me to where I was because, you know, the outcome of my life and the experiences I had as a young person could have taken me down a very different path to the one I am on now. But it's because of those teachers that gave me time and believed in me and invested in me that that's why... That's why I do it, you know, and and even now as a parent, there's a new perspective as well because like Nathan said, like, you know, be who you, who you want to be when you're younger. Yep, that's totally my motivation, but I want to be who, you know, I realise now that, you know, the, the parents of the kids in my class have the same hopes and dreams that I have for my own children and I want to be what I want for my own kids because the kids in my class are somebody's kids as well. And having, you know, the eyes of a parent now has again changed my why even more so. What about you, Serena? Similar to Karen, teaching wasn't my first preference. I actually went into business at uni first and with a semester to go decided, actually, I don't quite like the four walls around me in an environment. Interestingly, I'm now wow again. But yeah, I sat, I got a full-time position near the end of my business degree and looked around and went, I don't like it. I didn't like the sitting, answering a phone, the lack of interaction. And I'm very much a people person. And I'd always worked in things that had involved, voluntary work that involved children. And as soon as I had mentioned to my family teaching, they just looked back and went, 
why didn't you think of this first? And so I moved over. My work was very lovely to keep me on for the remainder of my teaching degree. But as soon as I stepped forth in a prac, I just went, this is where I'm meant to be. And that hasn't changed. I turn up each day because I love what I do and I love seeing a light bulb moment in a child and watching them learn something new. And for me, learning is such a wonderful thing that doesn't stop no matter how old we are and to share my passion for that and watch a child who's disengaged or who for them their home life isn't a safe place come to school and feel happy to be in that classroom to be learning just puts a smile on my face and to see that them wanting to know more about the world gives me the why interestingly nathan in uh, a prof professional learning we're having exactly the other day we brought it back to how companies have why at the center and what makes them different from a what and a how is the product but why is that your course so I really like how you started with that because so true. it's the same for a school. Why do we do what we do? It should be more than the product and the results that we're driving, but the impact that we want to have. One of my questions was looking and reflecting on a situation or something that's happened that shifted your perspective quite significantly. Is there anyone that would like to start? Because it's quite a deep question, something that's happened or something that you've seen or learnt that's actually shifted the way you see things. I was I was going to say exactly what I just said before. For me, becoming a parent was a huge was a huge shift. Yeah. I remember most of my career I did younger years, and as a teacher without children, I think I was very um, I'll stop it, snap out of it, you, or you know, just just things that when you become a, when becoming a parent, it just changed the way I I saw everything that I do and every interaction I have and even interactions with parents and things that perhaps maybe I used to get frustrated about that, you know, I would feel like maybe parents were wanting to know too much. But as a, as a, as a parent now, I am on the other side going, I want to know what's going on in my child's classroom. I want to know all the, these things. Whereas pre to having kids, I was like, why do they even care? Like, you know, just, <laughs> just has changed every single thing that I do as a teacher, obviously for the better, because, like I said, I think it's yeah, it's brought new perspective on a lot of a lot of things that I that I did before having kids, and it was not that I didn't care; it was just wasn't my my lens that I saw the world through being a parent. And now I do, and it's it's changed me. I'm not saying that you know, um, if you don't have children, you're not you you don't understand. Not saying that at all, but it was just a moment in my life where it really challenged me personally on a lot of things that I'd done made me reevaluate and um, change my perspective. And, you know, it's it's been for the better for me personally in my practice as a teacher. Mm -hmm. What about you, Serena? I mean, for me personally, I can't go past the last year we've had. If we think this time a year ago, mm -hmm. the world we know was about to change. Everything we did every day was turned upside down on its head. But for me, it really highlighted no matter the distance between us and you can take so much away from how we live our lives relationships is at the core of what we do and for me as a teacher that's something that I really pride myself on is maintaining relationships with my students but also their families and that they need to have somewhere safe to be and when we take away the school that they can come to how do we ensure that we're still there for our children we're still there for our parents and supporting our team and that really shook me to go we may not be together in a room. I may not have 30 kids in front of me and I don't even have my whole cohort of teachers with me. 
but how do we keep doing what we do and show that we're there for one another? And to come back into, I see like the world now for us is looking much better, it's much safer, but how do we keep at the core of what we do is for relationships and those that we want to show we care for you and you are safe. And I really found it shook me significantly. If you take everything else away, you take the pretty displays away, you take the presentations you do away, how do we still teach and how do we still show we care? I love that. I reckon everyone's nodding along with that, Serena. Everyone's had that same, yeah, that same shift. What about you, Nathan? I, yeah, I've been doing a lot of nodding over here, Laura. <laughs> all of this. I guess another thing that's really changed my, my professional perspective from what I was doing to what I do now was when I went from secondary school teaching to primary school teaching, that was an, a, just an enormous shift. You know, in, in a primary school setting, I now say that I teach junior school, you know, for many years I was teaching grades five and six. And so going from senior school in primary to junior school in primary is actually like two different jobs again. So there's like worlds within worlds in education. And so going from a secondary system to a primary system and a secondary style of teaching, which is all about content, it's very mm-hmm. content driven, you know, it's all about pre and post testing and getting, getting you know, those cats done, getting those assessments done. And then coming into a primary school setting where it's all about the individual, it's all about the child, it's all about what, you know, I will teach you this thing until you know it, not until you know, that you've done the test and we've moved on because we have to get through the curriculum. It's And I don't and I only see you for a session on Monday, two sessions on Wednesday and maybe a session on Friday. There's so much lost in those moments and all the time that passes in between. Coming to a, second, a primary school setting has been a huge game changer. It's been, you know, it reignited that flame of the why I got into education in the first place. It taught me a lot, like Aaron was saying before about, parents and you know children obviously now I have some but even then coming into a primary school the relationships you had with the parents were really much stronger I knew these kids really were you know I was spending more time with them than some of their parents did and so it was it was like man I really am having a huge impact on the on the development of this child and that's a big responsibility and then obviously secondary school with the behavior management that's really important it's really you know high up on your priorities and then coming into a primary school where they just worshiped you day one it was it was like well what's that like what do you mean i was like so strict yeah that was like so strict still and i I have i had my i'd spent all this time before i started teaching in primary school contacting all these books for my classroom library and so you know i had it up there and i said now it's really important. We've got to have, you know, routines and procedures around this. And so, you know, I said, now, don't touch, don't touch those things over there because, and I was just really, you know, doing my, my secondary school thing and the kids would, you know, creep up to, <laughs> I just feel awful now, but they just creep up oh. to the books and have their hands behind their back and just be leaning to see some of the titles of the book. And these are like, you know, kids that should be just passionately excited, just pulling books off and reading them. And so, yeah. Huge, huge learning and it's totally changed my perspective of of education as a whole. I reckon last year, some of the big movements shifted things for me. So like the Black Lives Matters movement and Share the Mic Mm. and seeing so many more global perspectives last year because I didn't have anything else to busy myself with. And I think that shifted so much for me in terms of understanding where I fit globally rather than where I fit, you know, personally. And that actually... I think created a big shift in what I want to learn about and how I want to show up in the world. And I think 
I wouldn't have seen a lot of those things because I would have been too busy and last year made me see it because it was in my face and I had to acknowledge it. And the quietness, I think, of last year in terms of not being able to go everywhere and, and distract myself made me really shift in understanding the plights of others and the situations of others and where I fit and how I can make a difference more so in just what I do day to day, but globally, I think. And that's something I want to bring much more into the classroom too. And I think you guys are really amazing in how much you are sharing about those bigger perspectives and minority groups and Australian history and things like that, that Honestly, in high school, if it's not in the curriculum and it's not in what I'm supposed to be teaching, because as you said, Nathan, you move so fast, it's not likely that I will go and try and find that information. But last year made me made me see that I have to do that. Yeah, definitely. So much nodding going yeah. on. <laughs> we're, all, we're all very much, yes, in agreement. Yeah. Aaron, I love your question. Good teaching tool. What's something you can't live without? Yeah, something, a teaching tool that you just can't live without there's many, but if I had to pick one, thinking about something that I use every single day that just has so many opportunities, I'm going to say mini whiteboards. For me, okay. in my room, that is like a staple that we have to have, like a little small whiteboard, enough for every kid because, like, honestly, get rid of the books. We could just use those all day long. That is literally something that I just I couldn't live without in my classroom because we just use them so so many ways every single day. What about you, Nathan? Uh, I would say something I refer to a lot with my kids and drives a lot of the teaching in my room would be goals. So I guess you know, I've used different ways of tracking those goals in different classrooms, but, you know, having those little goal you know, to stick in their book or whether it's that they've got, you know, post-it notes over the top or something and they're, they're tracking those goals, whatever, but we use it, well, I use it a lot to drive a lot of the learning and, and the teaching. So, and I refer to it a lot. So if I didn't have that, I would be doing a lot more of the teaching and, and sorry, a lot more of the talking and a lot more of the, I'd, you know, have to arrange and direct so much of the learning. Whereas now that I've got those goals set up, students do a lot of that themselves that, you know, they have that agency over their own learning. They understand what they need to know, what they need to know next. And so that just alleviates some of the things that teachers don't have to do themselves always. And then, yeah, empowers the students to, to take control. How about you, Serena? I must say I was with Aaron. That was one thing when I'd seen the questions come through earlier that I immediately thought of. Whiteboards are invaluable to our kids and I would agree every kid needs one and the benefit they provide to ensuring our kids are risk takers as well. When you can erase something immediately, it's gone and you can redo it and it's okay. But to link the two that Nathan and Aaron had said, feedback is my other big thing. Feedback from us as teachers is a fantastic tool for providing future goals and directions in a child's learning, but also showing our children as they age how to provide peer and self-feedback, looking against a learning intention and success criteria and actually getting a child to go and critique someone else's work and say, this is how you did it and this is your next step. Takes that away from a teacher for children to start to recognise their learning goals that they need to do next and what direction they need to head in. And when they get it from a peer, you just watch them it seems to click more. They hear it from their friend and go, yeah, I did miss that in my work. I'll do it next time. You go, I've been saying that to you for all week, but okay, you heard it from your pal and you're doing it straight away. And they will actually go back and fix their work 
and then give it back to their friend and go, look how I did it now. You go, oh, okay. Nice, nice to know you listen to them. But the same as self-feedback. You watch a child critique them, their, their own work against what you're wanting and it's like a light bulb goes off and they go, actually, I missed this or next time I need to improve this. And so I feel whether it's a child assessing, a peer assessing or a teacher, it is such a valuable tool to be using no matter what key learning area you're teaching. Serena, one of your questions was about advice you would give to a graduate teacher. So why do you think that's an important question? As I said, I work at a school with a huge number of beginning teachers and we've all been there. We've all been a first year teacher. We all know what it's like. And I feel there is constant pressure mounting on teachers to know everything the moment they're out of university and the moment they get their first classroom. And it's okay not to know everything. I feel so much with social media as well. There is pressure for your classroom to look a certain way. And I mean, I love a beautiful classroom, but it's okay not to have everything perfect on day one. It's okay to admit we're learning. And so in hindsight, I look back and go, I wish I had have taken a moment myself to go, it's okay to figure it out. You are still learning. You haven't had a class for a whole year beforehand. And each day is a new learning adventure. It's okay to go to your mentor or go to the person next door and say, hey, how do I teach this? Or can I just ask you how you're going to do this? Can we buddy up our class so I can watch how you would do it too? And I feel so so much that we're afraid to ask for help. And it is so okay to say, hold on a moment. I just need to check how do I do this? And for so many graduate teachers that I talk to online or that I talk to at school, that is the thing that I really like to hone in on, that it's okay to not know and it's okay to ask any question. Not to say that you get to the end of your first year and you know everything because we're learning every day, but I feel especially in your first year or whether you're jumping in in the middle of a year and you've taken over a class, it's okay to say, I don't know. And we need to encourage teachers to be doing that more often than putting on a facade and saying, I've got it all under control. That's why people are in the industry to help. We're all here to support one another and we need to make it far more of a conversation than I feel um, it's been before. What do you think, Aaron? Yeah, you know, I was going to say the exact same thing, that, you know, coming into that attitude or that mentality of you just have to know it all and have it all together because for me, that was my biggest thing. I would constantly compare myself and, you know, comparing myself to people that have been teaching for, you know, years, even decades, and realising that, you know what, in your first year, that is the time to take the risk and it not work out because everyone is, there's so many systems and structures set up around supporting beginning teachers that it's the best time to try something out and go, hey, that didn't work and getting that support to help you improve your practice i think in my first year i just did a lot of not trying things because i didn't want to get it wrong i didn't want to make a mistake i didn't want to mess up and you know i would go back to myself and you know encourage myself as a beginning teacher to ask for help definitely to take more risks but also go easy on myself and be kind to myself and not put so much of the pressure i did put on myself you know working ridiculous hours and all night because you know I, I didn't have anything else to do. So I spent so much time working around the clock that almost in those early years, I didn't enjoy it as much as I do now because I was just pushing myself, pushing myself, pushing myself because I was trying to be at the level of teachers with years of experience and no one was expecting that other than myself. So. What about you, Nathan? Yeah, I would say, you know, everything that everyone said is, is so true. Another thing I 
would have loved somebody to say to me is that gradual release of the behavior and the control and the learning, that's actually really important. And it's important to have quite a, particularly at the beginning of a, of a, a year, that you have that really strong control of your classroom and you do develop those very, very clear boundaries, very clear expectations. You know, you do it as a team, you do it together as a group, that everyone knows exactly what will happen if things aren't followed or if things aren't done according to exactly the way you want it to be done and you do it again and again and again until you start to see those behaviours, those learning behaviours and those, those social behaviours that you really want to see in your classroom. And then you can start to release that over the year because if you don't, and this is one thing you just have to learn, I think, yourself, but if you don't and you let that go really quickly, that control and that respect and that all of those things and you don't set up those those routines and procedures clearly and expectations aren't super clear for students, then it is incredibly difficult to rein it all back in and then you start to become this person you don't want to be friends with yourself. Like you, you repeat yourself a lot and then you're just telling them the same thing all the time. And then you're saying, why are you not doing that? I've said it, I've said it 50 times. I've said it six, you know. And so you start to be this person you can hear in your head going, who is this person? I would not even want to be in this classroom. But it's more about, and I mean, we all have those days, but it's more about get that control really good to begin with. And it's not about being a, like a dictator. I sound like a horrible, like some kind of, well someone we wouldn't want to be friends with nathan obviously i know it's scary um (laughs) but it's about just yeah setting those boundaries and and you know kids need boundaries adults need boundaries kids particularly need them the world is big it's a very big and scary place if you're not sure of how far you can push and what will happen when you get to a certain point and so if that's made super clear to begin with a couple of instances of where a consequence has to be followed or, you know, a conversation has to happen. Um, Some rest, you know, restorative practice needs to occur. And then really quickly, the classroom feels safe and students start to build that relationship with each other that they can take risks, then they can have fun in their learning. And then as the year progresses, you can start to let that go. And you'll, you'll see this amazing community this dynamic develop. And you just at the end of it, you're having just so much fun with your class because they know, they know how to, you know, that you, that what the respect is, what you need, you know, what all those little routines and procedures are. So I just wish someone had told me either don't let it go too early because it's going to be impossible or not impossible, but it's, it's nearly impossible to get it back or just showed me what it could be like at the end if you had done it the right way at the start. So I reckon people need to know that it's important to run your own race as a teacher because I think that especially now I'm in my mid-30s, I've been the young teacher, I've been the graduate teacher, I've been the inexperienced teacher and there were things that I feel I had more opportunity to do then that I now no longer don't have the opportunity to do and I think that people feel as though they've got to constantly get to that experience level and I actually think that sometimes there's real beauty in the not knowing and the making of the mistakes and to be inexperienced so that there's so many mentor teachers around you to support you and I think embrace where you're at as a teacher, whether you are new or more experienced. And I think that young teachers bring enthusiasm and new ideas and new ways of seeing the world that some experienced teachers can't find for themselves. And so there's real impact and importance in every educator, no matter their experience, no matter where they're at. And I think that that's important to know that you are important 
and you have a lot to give, even if you feel as though you're inexperienced. Yeah. Serena asks, what is your favourite subject to teach and why? Who would like to take that one? That is so it's hard. hard one. <laughs> <laughs> Laura, I was going to say, I, don't, I just don't know how you could do it as a high school teacher. I just don't think I could pick a subject and just teach that because, you know, I like them all and all for very different reasons. Yeah. And I think that's part of the thing that got me into primary school teaching was, you know, that, yep, I love I love maths and science. That's always kind of been a, an area of interest. But I enjoyed the opportunity to be creative and to be artistic and, you know, and do things visually. And that's the thing I love about primary school teaching is it allows me to do all of those things that I genuinely love in my own personal life but actually put them into practice every single day if that makes sense so it's hard to pick one subject I think one thing that I do really love I guess for the creativity that it brings is I do love teaching writing that is a real passion it's one of my favorite times of our our day and our week is teaching writing as well as creative arts so music drama visual art they would probably be my two my two favorite areas to teach I think as a high school teacher, I'm not the norm because I teach science and biology, English and dance. So I, I understand what you're saying and it's probably why I have such a variety of subjects because I do like different elements of. Probably favourite one would be English only because it creates so much discussion and I love talking to people. I, clearly, I have a podcast, you know. I love talking to students, love hearing where they come from. I love hearing perspectives. I love injecting literature into that and creating these big deep conversations so I think if I can do that in any subject I'm pretty happy to teach anything but it it comes more naturally in English I think. The reason I had asked the question is now that I'm in an off-class role going into all of my classes I'm doing a lot of literacy and numeracy which are my two favorites I love explicit teaching of those concepts and having the time to really model quality work to children, whether it's quality writing, a quality comprehension answer that meets the group and refers back to text. And the same then for like a word problem in maths, to really look at it and pick at it and find the numbers in a very confusing word problem so that you can get your proper answer and showing the steps you take in the working out. And so a lot of the classes I'm going into, the children are saying to me, are you teaching this because it's your favourite subject? And because I've heard it so much lately, when it came to asking questions, I went, I'd really love to find out why there are subjects people are more passionate about and is there a reason we're more passionate about it? And I have said to the children when I'm teaching, it is because I love watching the aha moment of them figuring out they've never liked writing, they've been a reluctant writer, but now they see enjoyment in writing or they've found word problems overwhelming and confusing because of the language. But when we just find the numbers in it and find the word that tells them what to do with the numbers, it just becomes an equation again. And so having the children ask me that sometimes, I'd really love to find out why other people are favourites in terms of all the KLAs. What about you, Nathan? It's, and this is, this is something I definitely had the opposite mindset to all three of you when I was teaching secondary. I didn't enjoy maths as a student particularly i probably did in primary school and then started to hate it in secondary school and it became very textbook driven and obviously the concepts also become more abstract and i did it all the way to year 12 and i did well in it but i didn't like it and so 
I definitely saw myself as more of an English teacher. And so when I started teaching, I very quickly got into year 11 and 12 English, teaching that for the five of the six years that I was at secondary school. And even now, I still see that innate passion come through when I'm doing a reading, you know, reader's workshop or writer's workshop session or, you know, and we're, we're seeing all that learning happening and I just lo- love seeing the students see the purpose in text. But now I really love teaching maths as well. And, and it's like everyone is saying, it's really hard to pick now. But when I was teaching secondary, that is not how I saw the world. And so, again, that shift in perspective has, has come because of primary teaching and I think if I'd remained in secondary teaching, I would still be an English teacher. I would still be teaching those subjects. And that is actually part of the reason I stopped secondary school. I was starting to get really bored and it was very repetitive. So particularly when it came, comes to VCE, it's the same book for four years. It's the same kind of questions that they ask you. You know, the assessments are very repetitive. And so it was very much like this machine I just found myself in. So this subject that was my favourite almost drove me out of the profession, which is scary. And so I think now about primary and how important primary is because you get to see those connections and you can make it an activity that has elements of numeracy and literacy and it's also creative, beautiful task that they get to spend time, you know, putting their creative talent into and making it beautiful and, and spending time to make it like an art project. And so you don't get that opportunity in secondary school. And I think that's part of the reason I didn't like maths because I didn't get to do it the way I now get to teach it. So, yeah, I think there's definitely some some learning for all primary and secondary teachers in there. <laughs> I think, as you say too, Nathan, especially at a secondary school, the curriculum feels like it's kind of churn and burn. You get through it really quickly. So to me, shifting the perspective around what I love about it and moving it away from the curriculum was actually very important to empower me and to make me more passionate. I totally understand what you're saying. You know, you say this, say the same thing over and over. And when you realise that you get more from the students and their perspectives, it shifts the way you see it. And so you're not teaching it the same again. That's it. And, you know, are you using the same PowerPoint you made five years ago for the same thing? Or are you keeping it fresh? Are you asking students to have input? Are you getting any of their voice in what you do every day? Do you ask them how they want to be taught this thing? And I think there was so much pushback from that style of teaching in a secondary setting because they're like, what? You now expect me not only to get through this level of content, but I now have to what survey the kids and somehow shift what I'm doing. But there's only one VCE exam or there's only one, you know, HSE, whatever. And so there was this push like, well, you can't go too far off the train line because it's only got one destination. So you've got to get on that mm-hmm. carriage and on that train line and you get to the end because that's the test. And maybe that's part of the problem, you know, these is the testing, is the exams, like the way that these things run at the end, like the, the end point, because those end points just dissolve when you get to uni. It's, it becomes a totally mm-hmm. different way of learning. Like, you know, Serena was just saying she... This was her second choice, but then she's got into something and learned something different and changed her mind. And Aaron was the same and thinking about medicine, but actually thought maybe education, but that's not how school works, you know? And I think that's where, particularly in high school, it just does not work like that. And I feel like if that could change and students had more flexibility in their learning, then we would see, yeah, we'd see more engagement for sure. That's a really big question that I'm going to pose from you, Nathan, which is how do we make that change? That's a good point. It's a great point. And I speak so much about this is the fact that primary school is this idea of giving them some really good 
foundations, but then I'm sure that at five and six, there's got to be some kind of movement towards, okay, you need to be able to sit and be able to absorb information in a way that is appropriate and palatable at a high school level. And then from seven to 10, we have all these lovely ideas and then it gets into year 11 and 12 and it's like, okay, that's great, but you now have to sit this test because that's the test that has to be done for university. And really we're all kind of filtering up to this score that allows students to get into a university placement, which is what it's for. But there's so many flawed fundamental issues with that. So how do we fix it, guys? This is a big one. This is huge. And I do spend a bit of my time thinking about this and I'll I'll be interested to see what Serena and Aaron say, but I feel like the transition between six and seven is appalling. It's really bad. And it's bad across every state. All the data from every state is shocking. Students you know, their engagement levels and their interest in school just plummets after grade six. It already starts to drop in grade five and six, and then it just has this landslide effect. And that that is where you're getting, you know, huge disengagement. And there's a myriad of factors for that. You know, we've got puberty, we've got a whole lot of social learning is happening at that time. There's a lot of other pressure, bullying, harassment, social media, but it's also the education system itself. You know, it's not catering for these kids, but then you've also got a primary school system, which also in a way sets them up for failure because it's, it's oh, you know this kid so well, you've got this one teacher and you build this re- relationship with them and then we throw them to the sharks. You know, they get to this secondary school and they've got you know, 13 <laughs> different teachers. Yeah, I felt like that and I was running year seven yeah. as, you know, one of my responsibilities at the secondary school was like a year seven coordinator and it was very much about like getting that regimentation making sure they're wearing the uniform do you have your diary why haven't you you can't go to your locker during you know between these two things and so there's all this structure that they have to learn and then on top of that they don't have the same teacher they've got this you know they could have six different teachers in one day yeah and so where's the connection they all of a sudden lose the connection that they had to school they have no ownership over any of the classrooms. They don't see their work up on the wall. Their value is very minimal, if at all, in their own perspective. They don't see their value because where are they Where are they seeing it in the school? They don't. I mean, that's very much my perspective and my understanding, and I'm sure there are lots of other secondary schools that do a better job of that. But one thing that would easily fix this, create a middle school system, and it wouldn't be hard to do. You could add on seven and eight to a lot of primaries that are in a really high growth area or you could add a grade five and six onto a you know secondary school that's in an area that it could cater for it instantly you have a, a middle school system where the transition is actually from four to five and then from eight to nine and that is a much better transition time for students and you know for for a lot of reasons and then my ideal is to have that primary system running at a secondary system. So every teacher is qualified and is happy to teach English, maths, science, all of those subjects, and then it gets to VCE and then you narrow it down a little bit. So the same VCE teacher will teach you for English and history and whatever. So it's a little harder to manage at that end, but all the way through you could definitely do it and have specialist teachers to teach those other subjects like you do in a primary. What do you think, Serena? That's a great question. I really agree with you, Nathan. I think a middle school setting helps change that huge transition for our children. They have known K to six and that bubble so well that we then thrust them into an entirely different world and a different way of learning, a different teaching style. It's a huge shake up. 
I find private schools that do it have a lot of success as well. And we do lose a lot of children at the end of year four or year three that start moving into private school systems so that they can move into the middle school before they want their child to be in the high school there to allow their child that transition time to know their peers before it becomes a huge link up into high school. So I really agree with what they have said on that. My school, I find, I really like, we do a lot of specialist subjects in my school. So they are quite used to moving to different teachers, but still bringing in an element of student-based learning and a lot of projects, especially in five and six, when we do start to see that lack of engagement coming through. And that has happened a lot younger now as children are maturing and going into puberty a lot earlier. How do we still engage our, our children when they're facing a lot more emotions at a younger point in time, they have different thoughts around school. And we do a lot of going to different subjects with different teachers and then really highlighting after they've sat collective testing year six and then you go, well, that was the pinnacle for year six. That's what gets you into the high schools you want to get into. How do we keep our children engaged going forward? And they do a lot of that bringing the curriculum into embedding it into conceptual units, a lot of student-led programs where you're ticking off the syllabus but in a way that you know your children are still interested and you watch their faces flourish at what they've been able to do still versus why am I still here? The next step is high school. I don't have to be here. And then as it gets to term four, our year six start doing a lot of teaching in a high school base. So they will do transition weeks where um, and it's not just the one week and, you, you know, we've done it, that's it, that's what high school will be like, but really giving the children an opportunity to see You'll get to pick subjects you want to as you progress, but there are still subjects you need to turn up to and you've got to pay attention for that hour because, as you said, Nathan, you're not going to see them until Wednesday afternoon again. And if you don't get it done, that becomes in your own time and that's a huge change on our children that that teacher still expects their work done as well as the six other teachers. So starting to allow our children to see what that is going to be like so that it isn't such a significant shock for them when they go into year seven and go, hold on, why am I being asked from seven different teachers where everything is? We've at least exposed them to that a lot earlier, which I feel really thankful for that our children seem to leave with a, a better idea of what's about to happen. What about you, Aaron? Yeah, you know what? I'm going to just say ditto to, to both of those points. But, yeah, I think the thing that stands out the most for me is exactly what Serena and Nathan have said is, you know, we're expecting kids to transition well into completely polar opposite systems of schooling. They're completely different worlds and we just expect that they'll seamlessly transition from one to the other and then we kind of go, why isn't this working? Because primary school and high school are nothing, nothing alike in so many ways. So similar to like what Serena was saying, we, we've tried in our, our school to get some of those high school style structures happening where, you know, they'll have specialist teachers for subjects, but like say, for instance, for maths, our kids move between our five year, five and six classes for maths to get them used to and into that habit of, of starting to have different teachers for different subjects and then trying to build in some of that accountability early to help them with time management. Yes, they've got different things that they're working on in different subjects and trying to engage them through areas of interest and relevance and real life sort of situations and concepts to keep that level of engagement up because that is, you know, one of the common things and I remember saying it in high school, why do I need to learn this? Showing kids that 
says how and how you do it because it, otherwise it just loses meaning. Um, yes. And I remember as a as a high school student and even probably late sort of primary, that's that was my attitude of I just felt everything wasn't relevant. It didn't matter. Why, why am I wasting my time? Mm. The flip side to that too is the fact that high school isn't like university really either. And I think that there's another question I want to ask you about marketing a school. I mean, so much of high school is marketed on results, so much. How many university, you know, acceptances have happened and it's not reflective of whether or not they've finished a degree, gotten a job, become successful in any way, shape or form. It's purely a marketing tool. And so for high school teachers, we have so much pressure on that ATAR score because it's so marketable. And how do you get an ATAR score? Well, you spend a lot of time with the students and you foster relationships and you mark work around the clock and you run lunchtime classes and you're constantly available. And then you get to university and they don't know who you are. You're just the number. If you turn up to a lecture call, if you don't, nobody cares. And we haven't prepared them for that particularly, but it's very hard to prepare them for that when the only way they can get into university is to get that score. So there's so much sort of issues around all of those kinds of things. And I don't know how we do that better because a lot of the motivation behind that is the fact that we have to market our schools somehow to get parents. And so much of that is about results. So what are your thoughts around marketing a school that isn't so much driven around data and quantifiable success like that? How do we market it differently? That's a very hard <laughs> That is very hard. Who wants to take that one? <laughs> yeah, I think it's hard because, like you said, everything in education really and, and even society, that's, that's success. Mm-hmm. Going to university, getting into university is the thing that everyone should do. And it's funny because we're doing some surveys with students and one of the questions is, I will go to university. And kids in my class tick yes because they have this societal expectation of, well, I have to tick yes because that's what success is. And it's funny that even in year, you know, doing that same survey with kids in year four, they already pick up on that, that my goal in life from, you know, being nine, ten years old now, my goal is university. And not because it's what I want to do, it's because of what I'm being told by society is that is what good people do. So it's, how do you say it? I guess we need to dismantle society um, structures. How do we go about doing that? Great question. Education. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but do you know what I mean? Like it's, it's hard because that is what society today sees as the purpose of education is to get people into university because, you know, if you don't go to university, oh, well, you know, your life is just going to be so limited, which is is not true at all, not at all. It's hard because that's, that's the pressure. Like I said, kids in year four already feeling that pressure, that expectation on them. What about you, Serena? I've taught kindergarten children who have known that they're going to become an accountant or a dentist or a surgeon. So I've seen it from four-and-a-half-year-olds. I do agree. It's society. It's the pressure mounted, not just in high school to get the results, but it's flowing from the moment they walk into the school gates as a five-year-old or four and a half that you're at the school, you're going to get these results. You need these grades in your report because that's going to get you into an OC school or at the end of year six into a selective school. And because that selective school will get you the results that you need to get into university. And that university has got a better system set up for what you're going to do as a job. And for that pressure to be mounting on such a young child already, that that is the path you're going to take. 
it does come back to how we change society and change that outlook that there are different ways you can you can do everything i mean i went to university with a school that got me into business i didn't progress with business i ended up moving to teaching and it's okay to change that but how do we create a conversation from that i'm not quite sure that's i think it needs to be highlighted across many people that a number isn't all our children should be and a number isn't all our schools should be there is so much more than that and I mean, if I think of me personally, I remember my parents had my name down. I went to a primary, a department school as my primary school, and then I went to a private school in high school. And they had my name down from a very young age for that private high school for the reason, and their words, whole, a whole child emphasis was at that school. It wasn't just your marks. They valued ensuring you came out as a well-rounded whole child, as entering your adult life. And that's something I really, I mean, I'm just one teacher at one school, but something I really like to prioritise to my kids is not just the be all and end all getting an A on a test. It's okay if you are passionate about other areas and having the courage to want to pursue those passions or find different ways to go about what you want to do in your adult life. It's not just I'm getting all these grades because that's what I've been told to do, but rather what do you enjoy doing and how do we facilitate them pursuing that? But yes, it's a matter of small bite-sized conversations and hopefully it makes a change. I'd like to amalgamate two questions, one from Nathan, one from Aaron. So Nathan asks, what's your favourite book? And Aaron asks about like a well-being practice that you do to sort of support your well-being. So Nathan, do you want to start? What's your favourite book and a well-being practice? I was kind of asking this question because I find it too difficult to answer, but I find it fascinating to hear what kinds of books people do really love. I guess if I had to choose one book, man, it's like choosing your favourite child. No, I can't. I just can't. So instead, what I'll do is I'll, I'll tell you what kinds of books I like and then I'll just mention one. So I really love modern fiction. So that modern classic, anything from like, you know, Truman Capote or anything from that sort of era of writing where lots of styles of writing were being created and lots of things were being experimented with, you know, literature was being pushed to its boundaries. Things were being censored and uncensored and, you know, lots of things were were happening in that world of books and, and writing. So I guess, yeah, the modern classic is a really important you know, 1984, all these books that came out at that time that really have resonated for a long time after, I guess that's probably where they sit. And then the other type of books I really love are that personal development and the fact that you can pick up a book and you're basically reading somebody's life experience and you can buy it for $15 and that's somebody's whole life journey and every lesson they've learned and they want to share with you and say hey this is what works and one that really resonated and it's actually interesting because it has to do with a lot of what we've already been talking about is ariana huffington her book thrive and i wasn't particularly interested in it but it came up as like a book club kind of subject so i read it and her perspective of success she's one of you know the wealthiest people in the world she's got an incredible business and yet she realized that the two determining factors for success are money and power. And that's how it's, you know, rated across the world. And she was in many, you know, many people's perspective successful because of that. 
And she said, no, we need to redefine success. Like if we just did that, because where, where's the happiness? Where's the well-being? Like Aaron's question, you know, is something that we do for our well-being. Where's the time that you get to spend with your family? All the things that really make you a person, because at the end of the day, how many of those things that you do to earn you the money or the, or the power are, are going to be the things that draw people to your funeral mm-hmm. who want to remember you as that person that you, re- you know, that you were loved or you made an impact. And so if you take the time out to have that third element of success and maybe if we taught that to kids all the way from, like Serena was saying, kindergarten all the way to university and said, hey, you know, yes, money gives you opportunity, power gives you opportunity and more responsibility to make an impact in the world, but really a, a lot of your success will come from within it comes from your happiness and a lot of that cannot be bought with money or power and so you need to figure out how you're going to be successful with this third element and that is what her book is about so yeah i would suggest every teacher read that one as well because it's it's something that that has resonated for a long time since and what's your well-being practice oh i do i do meditation and yoga yeah and I'm sometimes really good at that. At the moment, I've been shocking at that and I can feel my flexibility just deteriorating day by day. Oh, <laughs> I go pick up something and I have, I've got my second baby coming in five weeks. And I just know I'm going to be carrying toddler, nappy bag, this, that and the other. So, yeah, I, I definitely need to get back to it. Redefine success again. <laughs> Serena, what's your favourite book and wellbeing practice? I feel a lot like Nathan. I'm an incredibly varied reader. Um, I love an easy read, um, something that can be done in a day laying outside. Alternatively, a autobiography or a biography is something I just love reading about someone's life. I love knowing it from either their perspective or what we've seen, how they're portrayed versus what they say of an account or how someone else portrays their life and the comparison between they might say on certain things I find very interesting. I enjoy history as well. So it's a real varied, like I will, if it's got a good recommendation, I will happily give it a go. And I feel that's what I like to share with my kids as well. But just because you like fiction doesn't mean you won't enjoy history. And there's something in that that you'll learn from just because you like an informative text doesn't mean you can't pick up poetry and enjoy that as well. So I feel I'll happily pick up anything. And the same on wellbeing books. I get so much out of that. Ali from The Young Educator had read one the other day and I'd messaged her after and just put that down as well. And it's a very easy, easy read. If you've never read anything on self-help and wellbeing, you do you. And it just had, sometimes we just need to read a book telling us to take time for ourselves to go, Mm. hold on, have I taken time for myself? And um, I was chatting with her after and she said as well, it's a very easy read. It was something you don't feel you can put down because you want to keep finding out, well, what do I do to look after myself and manage my stress levels and ensure I balance everything? So that was a recent finish that I took down lately. So recommend that one. And what about you, Aaron? What's your wellbeing practice and your favourite book? Oh, hard choices. (laughs) So favourite book, I actually thought of one from my childhood, but same as what Nathan and Serena had said, I do love a good story, love reading people's stories and lessons they've learnt from their lives. So like love anything like that. But for me, favourite book, the thing that popped into my head was The Indian in the Cupboard. Don't know if you've ever read it, but that book for me, it changed my perspective as a child 
on reading. So my teacher read that book to me when we were in, I think, year four or year five, and it changed things for me because I hated reading because up until that point I'd always been given a book to read by a teacher and it was never anything I enjoyed. So for me, I grew up hating reading because I never there was never any choice. The teacher would give us this book, whether it was in guided reading groups or whatever, and it was always, you read this. And that was the first book that I'd ever had someone read to me or had the opportunity to read as a student that ignited a passion for reading. Like this whole world that just completely engrossed me and got me in changed my attitude of of reading. And to the point now where, you know, I read it with my students last year and now being on the other side of that book and being that person reading the book to my students and seeing them come alive to the story the way I remember I did as a kid to the point where I just never wanted my teacher to put it down. Every time, you know, we got to the end, I just wanted to keep reading and I'd never experienced that before as a student. And, you know, it changed my attitude towards reading. So for me, that's a favourite book. You know, it is a great story, but, yeah, it just changed changed my perspective on reading and um, and that as a student. And I guess for me, well-being practices, um, exactly what, you know, Serena was saying, I think the thing I have been really focusing on too is knowing what, ref- like, refreshes and energises me because I would always go, I would always sometimes go, oh, well, this person does this, I'll give that a try. And it never, it was, it never worked for me because, you know, I think the biggest thing about well-being is understanding who you are as a person and what like refreshes and re-energizes you and, and doing that. You know, I, I sort of have the analogy of, you know, different cars require different fuel and different, you can't put diesel in a petrol car, it doesn't work. And so for us as humans, we need to understand who we are and ultimately what brings us joy and you know, refreshes us. So for me, you know, time with people is a big one, you know, time with others. So whether it's time with my family or just going to have a a quick coffee on the way home, um, doesn't have to be a lot of time, but for me, a half an hour chat with somebody can do wonders, but I know for other people, you know, like sitting down having a conversation with somebody that just doesn't do it for them. But that's, that's cool because, you know, you know, we're all different. So for me, it's, it's just taking moments with people that, you know, make a huge difference to, to my well-being and making that time purposely being intentional. I'm going to catch up with this person or um, we're going to stop and we're going to do this as a family this week for an hour or whatever. I love that you said the fact that it's understanding yourself that provides the well-being because, as you say, you can look at everybody else and go, well, they've got that hobby that really lights them up or they do this every week or, you know, that person's really fit and they look great and I want to be like them. But at the same time, you start taking on all those practices and if it's not actually you intrinsically, it's not going to make you feel good, is it? No, it just becomes more work. Yeah, yeah. Nathan's question, there's two, and I think I'm going to put them together. How do you get kids to invest and have agency but also how do you invest in yourself and be that lifelong learner? Do you want to answer that question first, Nathan, or tell me why you are? Yeah, well, I guess... I'm really passionate about student voice and agency and leadership and giving them, you know, empowering students to take control over their own learning journey because essentially they are in the driver's seat of their life, whether they want to be or not or whether they understand they are or not, like we all are. And so giving them opportunities to actually see it and to act on it and to take that ownership of what they do and how they learn and what they are going to achieve and how they're going to get there. And so I'm definitely all about building that within students and obviously each student will have a different experience with that every year level was is going to have a different amount of independence and interdependence that you can give them as well 
but yeah, I think I think if you do that, it really changes the, your whole classroom practice because students are starting to tell you what they need to learn next, and students are telling you, like Serena was saying, you know, or telling each other how they can improve their work. And by teaching, we know that we learn while we teach, and so while they teach each other this particular thing, because you've had that gradual release over an extended period of time, and then within your lesson as well, that learning has been released slowly, and then they're able to do it that agency is really cool to see. And then giving them opportunities to, to genuinely have that voice and to share how they're feeling, maybe about the classroom space, maybe it's about their learning, whatever, if it's about them personally, so that they are heard and and they can make a change and then they believe they can make a change. And that's why I wanted to sort of see Serena and Aaron do that. Like how do they, how do they kind of build that, not only with themselves to be lifelong learners as well, but how do they do that in their own their own practice? Off you go, Serena. <laughs> yeah, I would agree with how Nathan had commented. Providing children an opportunity from the get-go, you've set up your clear expectations, but they deserve to be owners of their learning. I can mandate how I learn and how I want them to learn, but they are 30 individual children and they deserve the right to say, actually, this isn't quite how I work. And it's coming about it in a respectful conversation and dialogue to be allowed that flexibility of, I learn better if I sit here. I learn better if I'm working collaboratively in a group. Actually, I'm an independent learner. And then fostering, well, at times we do need to collaborate with our peers. So how do we work on building your skill set for that? I find flexible learning is a wonderful way of doing that. So just even in the classroom environment, allowing children an opportunity to choose where they best sit, where they best learn. So having individual spots versus collaborative group tables and you watch the children sort of they gravitate to the same area and go okay so you're an independent learner you want to sit at your own table at your own desk no one around you and that's okay you've got a group of six that always want to work together and learn how I like working with my peers around me I benefit from collaborative discussion but I also know when to do my work entirely on my own so that uh, the group dynamic doesn't impact on my learning but it's a matter of introducing it in a slow way to children so that they know it's not just me sitting next to my best friend because I really like this person, but I'm going to sit next to this peer because it benefits my learning. And through doing so, then I bring in the learning goals and the feedback that the children to say, you're not always going to get your feedback from your best pal that you want to have play handball with at lunchtime. You are going to get feedback from other people around you because that's life we work with lots of different people in the world and we need to learn how to work with different people and how to take on that feedback and as nathan had said when they're explaining their feedback they've learned it we learn through doing and saying and so when you hear a child reflect on i need to include more complex sentences in my narrative because that will engage the reader because they're saying it it has so much more meaning than a teacher saying all right so the overall feedback for you all is to include complex sentences and let's keep going but a child taking time and ownership of their learning to go, actually, I do need to do that. How am I going to do that? This friend has provided me some assistance this week. I'm going to continue sitting with them in the following week so that they can continue to assess my work as well. But it takes time. It takes practice. And it's a lot of teaching the children how to receive feedback and how to take ownership of how they learn and what they want to hear. And I think it's modelling as well to our children how we learn as adults. Just because I'm an adult doesn't mean I have stopped my learning journey. I'm continually wanting to better myself 
and find ways to see if education is improving, how do I improve with it? If education is changing, how do I change with it? And help model that to our children to see it's not just because you're 10, it's not just because you're five in kindergarten, it is because that is what life is and we should constantly be wanting to better ourselves. What about you, Aaron? Student agency. Yeah, I think um, for me it comes down to just providing choice and giving students options. I mean, like Nathan said, it's, it's super important to have, I guess, like gradually releasing that control. And, you know, we, we might start off where it is very structured and things like that, but simply providing kids with the opportunity to choose. That's something I try and do, you know, regularly in my my classrooms, you know, like in, you know, our literacy time and our maths time is giving students the choice over these are the options that you are able to do in this, you know, independent learning time. And even it's just been funny seeing my class this year going, what, you're not going to tell me which of those activities to do or you're not going to tell me what order I have to do them in or you're not going to give me the topic. It's it's about, you know, releasing that control and going, no, because I want you to ultimately do something, number one, that you're passionate about and you're going to be engaged in. But it's funny seeing the structures that sometimes we have in place where you can see that, Students haven't been set up to, to navigate that before. So, you know, it's it's important to give them choice, but to make sure that we're setting them up to have success in in leading their own learning. And, you know, like Serena and Nathan, I'm huge on student-directed learning and letting kids determine their goals and their next steps. But that's something that doesn't happen overnight. It's that, again, gradual release model of it is very much teacher-led at the start you know, and I've sort of been in this unique experience now for me where I've actually been teaching the same cohort for five years in a row now. And when we started on this this journey of self-directed learning, it was me telling them, this is what you need to do. But five years down the track now, I'm able to step back and because we've had these consistent structures and a gradual release where they can tell me, you know what, Mr. Johnson, this is what I need to work on next. And like Serena said, they're giving each other effective feedback because you number know, number one, it's been modelled to them and things like that. But it's it's been a journey, and you know, along that that way, sometimes it means pulling back and and you know, you've we've had a moments where I've let them go and it hasn't worked, and being okay to pull them back in and go, listen, we're going to tighten things a little bit, and we're going to go backwards before we can go forwards. Because like Nathan was saying, it's harder if we do it too quickly, if that makes sense, because, you know, allowing students to have that self-directed learning is is a big thing to undertake. And there are times when, you know, we have to pull back and, you know, Serena was talking about flexible, you know, letting kids choose where they want to, where they want to sit. And I'm all for that as well. But, you know, I'll tell you a story, you know, last week, the cushions guys, they're going in the cupboard because... We're just, we're just not doing that effectively anymore and we have to pull that back and we have to reevaluate and we have to go back to, you know, the foundations and building those expectations and retraining in a way so then again we can have that release into letting students choose where they sit and have control over what they do. And I think sometimes we, we think that when we do that we're failing but they're learning and that's okay sometimes that we have to maybe pull back on some of that freedom and reevaluate and, and, and set things up again. But it's so important that I know as a student, like I said, I needed a, a system like that. Whereas, like I said, I hated reading and I hated things because I was always just told what to do. There was no student voice. There was no student agency. And I really 
my later years of school in high school, I just hated it. I didn't enjoy anything because it was always, you do this, you take this, you read it, you go to this page of the textbooks, you do questions, one, two, three, four. I hated everything to do with that sort of a system. It just didn't work for me. But I think like everyone has said, we need to model it as well. And, you know, when I often talk about with my students, you know, about what I'm learning, what I am, you know, reading outside of school, about how I am developing as a learner too. And kids go, oh, you're still learning. Oh, you're, you're going to this course to learn more about maths or whatever and modelling that and going, yep. And then I'm going to come back and I'm going to have to sit down and think about how we apply it. That's, there's power in that too. I think Nathan and I, in our conversation that we recorded last year, you talked about the negative elements of feeling as though we have a product that we have to produce by the end in education. And I think that high school is worse in that because our curriculum is so much more finite and boxed in. I think you guys have a lot more freedom, but I think the empowerment is so important and humanising everybody, including ourselves, is very important because we are learners, constantly learning And also we don't all learn the same. And that idea of one product and one thing being produced at the end is not human. And so from a high school perspective, obviously I have a bit more language to be able to use, understanding who they are as learners, how do they learn? And then giving them strategies and skills to be able to learn their way rather than necessarily the way I learn, because I might be a completely different learner to them. And also the transparency of that to see in this classroom, we have a third of this class being kinesthetic learners that literally cannot sit still in this class and seeing that they're not alone too. I think that all of those kinds of things are very empowering. And I think the more we can acknowledge the human element of everybody in that room, the more empowering it is to make a mistake because we all do that. We're all human to pivot and shift our perspectives because we don't all know everything. And Nathan, I think, said that too in his conversation. We don't know everything. And the more you learn, the more you realise you don't know. And I think that that power in the room as a teacher is really beginning to be very, very antiquated where we have all the power and we are all the knowledge and we are everything to everyone and we know better. I think that that is disempowering and it also takes away the agency and I think most teachers I speak to now don't want to do it like that. Yeah, and so like you said, Laura, any future projectionist who's looking at what the future will look like and particularly for education, things like YouTube and learning on the job and the way technology will impact a lot of that learning, even trades, the way that they learn so many of the models and things that are developing now is that people will just learn on the job so much of what they do. They can follow along and they can just watch a video. They don't need to store it in their long-term memory if they're only going to use it once in their career anyway. And so if education is changing so much, we need to start, yeah, reevaluating what it looks like. And I couldn't help but think of, I think it's Ken Robinson who spoke about the system of education and how we've used this economic model you know this manufacturing model for so long in education Mm. where everybody gets the same and this is why it's like a product line and we would just Mm. push through whereas if we think of it differently and we see it as more of an agricultural model and we see that every child is like a different plant and requires different you know environment they they require different amounts of water and they require different amounts of food and students the same they required like serena said someone different to sit or they required different levels of interaction and like aaron was saying you know they they required different amounts of instruction in order to do something independently so if we start shifting the model away from that 
you know, that economic manufacturing, you know, straight out of the dark ages. And then we look at the, what education is now in 2021, just after lockdown, and they've, they've shown how independent and how much technology has impacted their learning. Yeah, we need to start seeing them as, as that agricultural model. Every kid's different. I think I'd like to end on this question. Eliza, I'm going to have you all day. And it's Serena's question about our wishes and hopes for education moving forward. And I usually do have this in the podcast, so you boys might have given an answer already, but I'm hoping you can either think again. But what are some of your big wishes and hopes for education moving forward? Serena, did you want to start with that or at least acknowledge why you asked that question? Yeah, I guess the same reason why I had asked a question about how education has changed following the last year we've gone through. We've seen and it's been highlighted in education around the world how much we can go through and how flexible we are and how adaptable we are. We know that children are going into occupations that don't yet exist. So how do we create a school environment that helps ensure our children are ready to go into a world that not only is a digital age, but is also of occupations that we have no idea what they will encompass. And I think in doing so, I'm hearing throughout our discussion how we are providing student voice and opportunities for students to acknowledge how they learn. But for me, I wish that having, and I guess the exposure in this conversation has been that big change into high school. I'm a K to six primary educator and I can do as much as I can in that at the moment but we're hearing of the discrepancy then as they go to high school. And so I guess from having had this discussion, my wish is that children will still be seen as individuals and not just the end mark uh, of their HSC or their VCE mark. But how do we encourage that children are allowed opportunities to flourish on their own and under their individual passions in a high school environment so that they can go into the world ready for a job that would involve any aspect and myriad of of work. We don't know what they're going to be doing and we are trying to foster that in a primary school setting and allow them opportunities to learn as independent children and to have exposure to collaborative discussion because that is what we see in work environments. But how do we continue that into our high school setting? And so I guess my wish is to see that children won't have a disadvantage when they go into year seven and that big shake up of the way they learn but that we can allow children to still remain independent people who deserve the right to learn how they best learn in order to get the best product from them at the end. What about you, Nathan? Oh, it's so, yeah, it's very much like Serena said, you know, that that transition to secondary is just so ineffective. It's not helping our kids. And now, like Aaron was saying, his perspective shifted when he was a parent. I'm exactly the same. And I think about my kids and that transition for them and then, how, how that will impact them. So if I could have a wish and it be granted, you know, there'll be so many things I would wish for, but if it was education related, I think that middle school system, if we could just put that into every school in Australia and like Serena said, start seeing students as individuals, but in a secondary setting and connecting them to teachers, giving them a room that the teacher can set up and to put some work up because we now having that third teacher space is so integral into so much of what we do in primary and just to put that into secondary and just see it work i mean if talking nicely to plants has an impact on how they mm. grow how much better would it be if we had this secondary system which spoke nicely to the these you know essentially children they're still children and these individuals and we just use that that 
agricultural model. We just, you know, give them what they need to succeed and then just redefining that success for them too. And so that they, yeah, maybe they more money would give them more opportunity, more power will give them more opportunity to have more impact, but knowing what makes them happy and knowing that that is also just as important because it's that well-being and, and that happiness, which will give them that, that good life overall as well. So yeah, it's a big wish, but that's mine. <laughs> what do you think, Karen? I'm going to say mine's a big wish too, and very much in line with what Serena and Nathan were saying. You know, my wish is that we would operate in a system that doesn't expect every student to be able to do the same things at the same time and be at the same spot. I have a toddler crashing our conversation. <laughs> Welcome to 2021. Um, yep. I'm learning. It was almost that moment, like that guy on the news where the kid comes in from behind. Except I love that. Awesome. I love that so much. It's so funny. <laughs> My wish would be, yeah, I guess a change in our practices and our curriculum to have a, a setup where student success is where students are only measured against themselves and their own progress. Because, you know, I know with my students, you know, we're all about individual goals and individual progress. And there are some of my students that they bust their guts day in and day out and they do make progress. But that semester report comes home and it still says you are below where mm. you should be because we're still in a system that says, like what Nathan was saying about, you know, Sir Ken Robinson, where you're only successful if you meet this mark at this particular point in time. And, and that would be my wish. And it's a huge one because it means dismantling everything that we have done for so long about how we teach and the way we assess. But that's my wish that, that student success would be based on, you know, measuring them against themselves and nothing, nothing else because, you know, it's, it's sad as a teacher and it's sad for those students and their parents when, like I said, they, they try so hard, but their progress never seems to be enough, good enough, if that makes sense. I'm going to speak from a parent perspective too, because I find it really interesting. I've got two kids of which their personalities are completely their own. They are who they are. They've come into this world very specifically with very specific characteristics and personalities that some elements I absolutely adore and some elements I find incredibly frustrating. But it's great. It's so wonderful to watch them. And what I'm a little bit fearful of as a parent is how that changes when they get to school, when they are measured against other people, when they are seen to value certain things that perhaps aren't their talents. And so, you know, some things are, I guess, valued more than others. And at the moment, they don't know what those things are. And I just love watching how open they are, how excited they are to be who they are and to do things the way that they want to do them. Like they play differently. They look at the world differently. They, are, they gravitate to different things. And then we put them in a classroom where we're, they're told this is right and this is wrong. And I think from a parent's perspective, I'm really nervous about the beauty of who they really are not being valued. And I think that I can see that as a teacher as well, that we just don't sometimes and society says that this job's better than this job or this house is better than this house and it, I love the innocence of what they are at the moment and I'm just hoping that we can encourage them to be who they are to be valued for who they are and also be successful by redefining success so a huge wish for me as well but I think it's all the things that we've been talking about student agency redefining success and yeah, empowering our kids as best we can and I think from what I can see, all three of you are doing that within the system and within the constraints that we have. Oh, thank you, Laura. And thanks for giving us this opportunity as well to 
have this conversation, you know, Tyson Yukaporta and his book Sand Talk in that he talks about how actually it's not like we would all be the stars in the sky, would be these four stars in the sky, but it's the it's the darkness, it's the stuff in between that makes the stars shine. And when we heard what we were all saying, and then at the end, you know, we're creating this thing as we yarn together, we create this conversation. And it's so funny that it it ended up being quite, yeah, quite a, like a common thread that developed from these four very different people with different experiences. Um, and yet we have very similar wishes for the world. Yeah. yeah. Do you guys have anything else you'd like to say before I end the conversation? Thanks for having us. <laughs> Pleasure. What about Serena, it was very lovely to actually connect with you. This is our first connection. It's been lovely. No, thank you so much for having me on. It goes to show no matter what we're, what school environment we're in and where we're working, we have the same wishes for our children and the way we want our world to work. So it's an encouraging thing to hear that for very different educators all still want the very same thing. And if that's the hope across many other people, hopefully that's what will help change education.